Well, I want to begin our time this morning um, by considering a fake conversation that took place between two men over a brew of coffee one morning. John looked up from his cup and he said to Jacob, you don't really believe in God's sovereignty. Jacob responded, well, you don't really believe in God's love. John replied, oh, but I do. You are, you're so wrong. The Bible is clear about God being love. But you don't believe God loves all people, Jacob retorted. So how can you believe, as the Bible says, that God is love? God loves all people in some ways, but only some people in what you might call all ways, said John. Jacob, staring intently at John's face, then said, Uh, you seem to be in a trance as you said that. Are you sure you didn't just hear that somewhere and repeating it like a mantra without really thinking about what you're saying? Taking another sip from his coffee, John corrected him, No, that's not, no, that's really what I believe. How does God love those he predestined foreordained to hell, Jacob queried, not having even touched his own coffee. He gives them many temporal blessings, John explained. At least he tried to. You mean he gives them a little bit of heaven just to send them to hell? Jacob noted dubiously. Well, I wouldn't put it that way. That's what it sounds like to me. As I said, this is, of course, a fake Fictitious conversation, founded online. Uh, I'm glad I made it out of the blogosphere alive, uh, digging this one up. But uh, I did. I tried to make the conversation a little bit less stilted than I found it. But the quotes in it come from uh, someone else, and so this morning I want to talk about the. Really, the centerpiece of the conversation is that the nature of God's love, uh, particularly as we find it stated in 1 John 4, 8. It's a wonderful verse in the Bible that tells us God is love. Yet, probably even from your own conversations that you've had with people, and especially from anything you can find online, it's not necessarily a very well understood verse that God is love. And so there's actually a lot that I want to say this morning before we, we really get to the passage. But I do want to read 1 John 4, 7 through 12. If somebody would read that for us just to get the passage in our minds and then we have to clear the brush a little bit before we get there. Tris, if you do that.
Great. Thank you. And so uh, a question to you. How, how do we hear this verse, perhaps? How is it misunderstood? God is love. What do people maybe mean when they say that often? And nothing else, right? God is love, and that is the only way that we could ever think to characterize God is he's love. Something about peace signs? What? Flowers, peace signs, yeah. And what is it that typically we hear it in contrast to? Because, well, okay. Right, God's justice, perhaps his his holiness. Now. You don't hear people say, no, God's not holy, he's love, but that seems to be what's at least implied in Christian circles is, uh, even in Christian circles, is that when people talk about God as love, they have this idea or notion that that means that somehow he, his justice, his holiness, is not, uh, not something to, uh, it can be cast aside a little bit. Debbie, you guys, Debbie, you guys something? Mm-hmm. They look at uh, disasters in the world and say, well, if God is love, how can these bad things happen? Um, so in Christian circles, even His Holiness can be questioned, though not completely cast aside. But if you get into other like uh, cults, uh, religions that maybe involve Christianity of some sort or Jesus, but aren't in any way Christian, uh, they could take, you know, they would even go so far as to say that, well, because God is love, hell can't exist at all. Um, if God is love, then justice isn't a thing. And so it does essentially revolve around the question, how can a loving God allow bad things to happen to good people or send people to hell? And then especially in Christian circles, it's not just send people to hell, but it's the issue of if God is sovereign and people People are predestined one way or the other before the foundation of the world. How is that something to be understood within the love of God? Yeah, we uh, we get love confused because we uh, we have love defined a certain way, and then anything that seems outside of that. We have to push off because we, we have this presupposition about what love is. We're like, well, we know love is this. It can't involve this. And so if God has this, we've got to get rid of that. Yeah. Josh, did you? think you guys read my notes or something. Um, but so the problem 
that people have in this debate is that if God is love, they can't fathom that he could send people to hell, or at least how he could send people to hell, that he's predestined in any sense to go there. They say, that's not my God. My God is God of love. But as Josh said, and we've been getting at, the problem with this is that it's the wrong question to be asking. And there's a lot that could be said, but we have just a short time this morning. So there's just two things that I, that I see wrong with the question that I want to address first, and then we can come back to our text and kind of read it in light of making sure that we've got the right question in our minds. The first problem with the question, how can God send, how can a loving God send people to hell in any capacity? First thing that's wrong with it is that it's a man-centered question rather than a God-centered question. And secondly, um, I think, uh, Josh, you might have said this, but it, God is love and nothing else, right? It pits God's love against his other attributes as if he is made up of parts and we can compare and contrast and have his attributes at war with one another within him. That if God is love, then he can't also be holy or just. And so it's a man-centered question, and it uh, confuses um, the nature of love. And so, first, the assumption is, behind that question, that man truly is at the center of the universe rather than God. The world revolves around man. And every worldview, whether religious or philosophical, must have something to say about our place in the universe. And you would be hard-pressed to find someone that claims to be a Christian, at least, that would say it out loud or even think it to himself, but implied in many people's assertions about the meaning of 1 John 4.8 is the idea that religion, the world, the universe, and everything revolves around man rather than God. And perhaps this is seen most clearly in discussions concerning the will. I think it's safe to say that when most evangelicals in our day hear the word will, what do they, th- what do they think of? Let me ask you that. What are they thinking when, when they hear the term will, like my will, what are they thinking of? Desire, choice free, right? There's, yeah, we can't say it out loud, but there's this, there's this idea that inherently bound up and tied to the idea of will, particularly human will, is that of freedom, complete freedom. Now, it's been said that if philosophers and theologians would simply define their terms from the outset, most of their debates would be unnecessary, I think there's probably a lot of truth to that. And according to, get ready for this name, R.K. McGregor Wright, uh, when people use the term free will, what they essentially mean is that the human will has an inherent power to choose with equal ease between alternatives. The human will has an inherent power to choose with equal ease between alternatives. Alternatives. In other words, the will is free from any outside causation. 
No force outside of the will itself can determine any decisions that are made. Another word that can be used for this idea of will or will is autonomy, right? Autonomy. It uh, comes, uh, best of my knowledge, from two Greek words, auto and namas, self-law. Autonomy meaning person is a law to himself. He rules himself. If I am autonomous, then I'm not ruled by someone else. I answer to me. What's the problem with autonomy, though? What's that? Doesn't exist. It's an illusion. What about when we... What are we doing when we are seeking that? Spiritually speaking, at least. We're putting ourselves first. Anybody know what Isaiah 53, 6 says? Yeah. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. In that passage, that text, turning to our own way, and we saw this in uh, Proverbs 22 a while back, our own way is not something, that's not a Christian virtue to seek your own way. Right? Yeah, I did it my way. Frank Sinatra. It's not something that we want to uh, have written on our tombstones at the end of our lives. When we seek to rule ourselves, we make a mistake. Right? All we like sheep have gone astray. And in that passage, the result of us going astray is ends up the suffering servant. Christ has to die in order to redeem self-willed, self-ruled, self-governed sinful people. Wasn't that the error in the garden? What was promised to Adam and Eve? You will be like God, knowing good and evil. You don't have to rely upon Yahweh to know what's right and wrong and don't you know he doesn't have to make those determinations for you you can rule yourself eve was presented with a choice would she obey her own desires and wishes and inclinations or would she obey god ever since the garden man has been struggling for autonomy And I think it is this misunderstanding or rather the misunderstanding of 1 John 4, 8 that is birthed out of the struggle. The misunderstanding of the meaning of God is love comes from man's struggle to be his own master. Man in search for independence from God 
misuses this verse to turn God into a soft, cuddly being who is here namely to serve us and is our great big uh, vending machine in the sky that's here for our pleasure and amusement. But that is not God. And so that leads us to our second consideration uh, concerning uh, the wrong assumptions that are made given this uh, text. Um, before we go on, anybody have a comment or question that they want to add at this point? Is your hand up? And so the second fundamental assumption that people tend to make regarding the nature of God's love, is, which is founded upon the belief that man is central, is this. If man is at the center of the universe, God cannot be both just and loving. The idea is this. If God is love... He cannot also be a God of wrath. If God is love, then it is unfair for him to send people to hell, especially if he has predestined that certain people will be saved and other people won't. Yet, This is an unnecessary and even unbiblical pitting of God's attributes against each other. And there are three passages that I'd like to uh, briefly consider. And then after we've cleared out the weeds, uh, we can kind of bring it to a close with a, uh, hopefully a clear uh, understanding of our passage. So Romans chapter 9. Um, You can turn there, be there for a minute or so. Romans 9. uh, In Romans 9, Paul is addressing a certain objection that may arise after his glorious tribute to God's love in Romans chapter 8. He says that nothing can separate you from the love of Christ, neither Uh, death, nor life, angels, rulers, things present, things to come, nor powers, height, nor depth, or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And this is a great and glorious truth. The love of God is strong and safe and secure. And once it has been savingly set on a person, there is nothing in all creation that can rip the believing person from that security. And yet... In chapter 9, Paul goes on to lament that his own kinsmen, according to the flesh, to whom belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises, and the patriarchs, and from them is the Christ, who is God over all, his own kinsmen are cut off from Christ. But he says, this is not as though the word of God has failed. It's not as though the glorious truths of chapter 8 have become undone. Rather, he explains that this is due to the mystery of 
election. He says that not all that are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all the children of Abraham are his offspring. It is, he says, not the children of the flesh, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. He says that it is so that God's purpose of election might stand. And he gives an example of Jacob and Esau, that though they were not yet born, they had neither done good or evil. God declares, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. And this gives rise to a very important question. In fact, I even heard one of my seminary professors say that if your interpretation of Romans 9, 1 through 13 doesn't lead to the question of verse 14, you're doing it wrong. Paul answers the objection, which is this. The question that should arise, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? In other words, Paul, if what you're saying is true, if God set his love on Jacob before he was born, and he hated Esau, isn't that unfair? Isn't that in isn't that unjust? Well, Paul responds, by no means. While it is true that the question is should enter our minds, perhaps, concerning the issue of justice, it is critically important that we respond as Paul does, by no means. For this, he goes on, he says, the scripture uh, says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, I'll have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So then he has mercy on whomever he will, and he hardens whomever he will. And again, that leads to another question, the kind of sophomore in the back of the class is raising his hand now and saying, hang on, Paul, hang on. I'm tracking with you, okay? God, God is God. You know, he has mercy on whom he will. But why does he still find fault, though? Because we can't resist his will. Who can? Well, Paul says to that, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? In verse 20, well, what is molded? Say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? There is a great mystery here, and we're left, perhaps, not with all the questions to the answers that we have. But the answer we are given is enough. Who are we to answer back to God? The problem is that our definition of love is skewed. We are inherently, we have this vested interest in humanity. Our definition of what it means to be loving, often according to that natural worldview of the autonomy of man, is that God would and could never do anything that would be against any of man's wishes or desires. And for him to do so inherently is wrong. Ultimately, ultimately, though, we are men. 
We're not gods. We're men. Clay in the hands of the great potter. And who are we to answer back to him? So that's the answer. Is God unjust? No. Well, who can find fault? Who are you? Paul says that perhaps God desires to make his almighty power known. He wishes to make his glory and salvation shine brightly against the backdrop of his just punishment of sin. But should, side note, should this make us callous, hard people? Oh, sorry, bro, you just didn't make it. No. Listen, what did Paul say at the beginning of chapter 9? He says, He could wish himself accursed that he were cut off from Christ for the sake of his brothers. So this truth, this reality, doesn't produce hardness in us. But it produces desire to see people saved. We don't, we know not who God, whom God has chosen whom he has set his love on. And so we go and proclaim the goodness of God and his grace to all who are here. And we plead with them while there's still time to turn from God's wrath. Love and justice need not be pitted against one another. Okay. Thoughts on that? Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, and it's interesting that, you know, a lot of people who disagree with us on this, they would simply, I would simply, this isn't about personal election. Yeah, sure. It's about national election. God chose the nation of Israel, all the nations and the others he despised, but yet they don't have a problem with that. Bringing it <laughs> to a personal level, also, that's a completely different thing. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, quickly then, uh, Exodus 34 and Romans 3 kind of together, um, I, I think, shore up uh, or they really bring this all together, especially considering uh, the idea of the, re- the relationship between justice and love. In Exodus 33, Moses asked, asked to see the face. He sees, asked to see the glory of God, and God, uh, he cannot, will not show Moses his face, because Moses would die if he did, but he does pass by him, allow him to see his, his backside. And uh, would somebody read Exodus 34, 6 through 7, as God passes by Moses, he proclaims his name, and this is what he says, Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7.
And so what, what do we have there? We have both the love of God and the justice of God side by side. God is abounding in steadfast love. He keeps steadfast love for thousands, but he will by no means clear the guilty. Well, how can this be? How can God be both loving and just? How can he show love and wrath? Aren't those two things in contradiction to one another? How can both attributes exist in the same being? Well, Romans 3, I think, answers that. At least begins the answer to that question for us. And while you're turning there, uh, I love Moses' response. In verse 8, it says, God passes by, he proclaims his name. Verse 8 says that Moses quickly bowed his head toward earth and worshiped. He doesn't philosophize and theorize God. He simply receives this revelation and worships. Hey, we do the same. I, I hope we can begin with worship. It's fine to ask all the questions that we want, but we must begin from a place and a posture of worship and submission. So let's begin, like Moses, and ask God, if now we have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please go in the midst of us, for we are a stiff-necked people. Pardon our sin and our iniquity and take us for your inheritance. That is Moses' response to God's declaration of who he is. He doesn't say, but wait a second. (laughs) And we should too. So Romans 3 brings the justice and uh, love of God together, especially if you think about it in relation to 1 John 4, where we'll go in in just a second. Romans tells us, Romans 3 tells us that though all men everywhere have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, they are justified by grace as a gift through Christ whom God put forward as a propitiation or an appeasement of anger. This was by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. This is 3, 19, uh, 21 through 26 and there towards the bottom 25-ish. God's righteousness. Um, in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that God might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So here again, we have the love of God, the sending of his son, right? First, uh, John 3.16, God loved the world. He gave his only son. Uh, we'll see that. We saw that in 1 John 4.8. We'll look at it again. God sending Jesus as the propitiation of our sins was motivated by, motivated by his love as well as his justice, If God is love, how can he be just? But really, this passage here in Romans 3 is exactly what Josh said earlier. It flips the question on its head. The question really is, if God is just, how can he show love? How can he show, be gracious to sinners if he is just? Because sinners, the wages of sin is death. God is holy. God is just. 
And so the answer to that question, how can God show love if he's just, is, this is Sunday school, what is it? Jesus. It is through the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Christ that God is able to demonstrate his love and his justice to this fallen world. God can reconcile sinners to himself and remain just himself because in Christ there, was, there has been an open and public display of the anger and wrath of God towards sin. In Christ, all the sins of his people were punished and vanquished by God. In Christ, God is able to extend mercy to a fallen world. Because he has poured out all of his wrath on his son for his people. In Christ, there is no more animosity between God and the one who has faith in his son. All the wrath of God for his people have been, it has been used up. It has been spent. It is gone forever and ever, forever and always. The wrath of God for you, Christian, is removed. There is not a single drop of it left for you. And so in closing, 1 John 4, 8, God is love, you say. Well, love is a very prominent theme in this book. Uh, the noun form of the word occurs 18 times in this book, uh, at roughly an average of, of slightly over three per chapter. Um, the actual breakdown of that is not quite as even. Uh, most of them occur in chapter 4. Um, the verb form of the word occurs 28 times in the chapter. That's almost six times a chapter. And so here in this passage, we get a sense of what love is. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this love, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation of our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. You see there in Romans 3, the justice of God motivates the sending of his son. Here in 1 John 4, 8, the love of God motivates the sending of his son. The love of God and the justice of God are not at odds with one another, but they are displayed together most prominently in the sending of his son to be the propitiation of of the sins of those who have faith in him. And so, truly to wrap up, we've seen that the death of Christ is about the fulfillment of God's justice, but it's also clearly a display of his love. And so let's cast aside notions and ideas that God's justice is somehow in conflict with his love. God's justice is a loving justice. His love is a just love. God is love, but he's also holy and jealous and just and good and wise. 
First Timothy says he is uh, he, he dwells in unapproachable light. We, God is light, right? In Revelation, there's no sun because God is the light. So I, we, let's not forsake all of all that God is in order to uphold our own version and ideas of what it means for God to be love. So uh, I'll pray, but any last comments or questions? Yeah. Yeah, we, we must let God define and determine what love is rather than than us. We find that in our own relationships, interpretation of love and what that looks like. How we deal with others or how we expect them to deal with us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, love is uh, essentially others focused rather than me focused. We, we have to be careful in our balance, though, that we not we not eliminate that God loves everyone in a certain sense. Yeah. I I love my wife and I love your wife, but if I love your wife the same way I love my wife, there's going to be a problem. Right. Yeah, and I mean, and there was, I mean, so much that could have been said, um, but yeah, got different, you know, I love my sneakers, whatever. I mean, maybe, it's, I can use the word that way, but it's certainly different than, you know, loving uh, Jesse, so yeah, that's good. Russ? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's good. Well, let me pray. Father, thanks for the the time that we've had, and I'm painfully aware of of how much there uh, could be covered and should be covered. But I, I do pray that this was helpful, um, and that uh, it, you would use what we've said this morning to spur us on to consider to continue to consider what it means that. God is love. You are the incomprehensible God, and so we will never plumb the depths of all that you are. Um, So help us, God, to commit ourselves to the continuous study of your word and yourself. Uh, Thank you for the time that we've had. I I do pray that it was profitable. profitable, And be with us now as we gather together uh, to worship you uh, corporately as a body. Pray for those still coming and uh, thank you.
thankful for Jesus Christ, uh, in whom all your promises are yes and amen to us. In Jesus' name, amen.